So last week we covered the importance of holding on to the gospel, the gospel message you received, taking your stand on, and are saved by. We also covered Paul's arguments for the certainty of a bodily resurrection, including the theological and personal consequences for believing or rejecting the fact of Christ's bodily resurrection. This morning now, we'll be taking a look at the nature of the resurrected body. In this last half of chapter 15, Paul addresses two questions which would inevitably rise in the minds of those who question the fact of a bodily resurrection. The first one is, how are the dead raised? And the second one, the second one is, what kind of body will they have when they, when they come? The answer to these questions are important for us, all of us here, to understand. Because many people inside and outside the church have a misunderstanding about what happens to these bodies of ours when we die, after they die. Now these misconceptions or misunderstandings are often due to cultural traditions or what they learned in the media, school, or maybe other religions. Well, today's message will hopefully bring some clarity to any misconceptions that maybe you or someone you know have been misled to believe. You see, Christians, as Christians, we must never forget this fact. If we have been united with him in the likeness of his death, we will certainly also be in the likeness of his resurrection. So let's pray this morning and ask the Lord to speak to us through his word. Heavenly Father, again, we come before you on this glorious and wonderful day, Lord, that you've given us. You've given us because you love us so much. Lord, sometimes we, we have a tendency to wander away, to live by the flesh, to live by our own will and what we want to do because we're just so stubborn. Lord, you always remind us about who you are and you humble us and sometimes you have to correct us. And we thank you for that, Lord. Even though sometimes it's hard, we do, we appreciate it, we love it. We love you, we love that correction so much. Right now, I just pray for this morning as we get into your word, Lord, fill us with your wisdom. Fill us with your love. May every single word from, this, from these pages be ingrained into our heart, into our minds, Lord. May we look upon this passage and, and see and understand the future hope, the glory that awaits us. Let us be strengthened and encouraged again by what, you, what you're going to say here, Lord. Bless everyone here. Fill them all with the Holy Spirit now. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so we left off last week in 1 Corinthians chapter 
15, verse 34, and this morning we'll be picking up in verse 35. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 35. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? What kind of body will they have when they come? You fool. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And as for what you sow, you are not sowing the body that will be, but only a seed, perhaps of wheat or another grain. But God gives it a body as he wants, and each of the seeds of his own body. Not all flesh is the same. There is one flesh for humans, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the splendor of the heavenly bodies is different from the earthly ones. There is a splendor of the sun, another of the moon, and another of the stars. In fact, one star difference from, from another star in splendor. And I'll stop there for a minute. In these verses, Paul answers the first question, how are the dead raised? By providing analogies from the created world to describe the resurrected body. Paul begins by using an analogy of a seed and a plant to illustrate the resurrected body. We've all learned in school that a seed must fall into the ground and die before the plant can come forth. Now over time, on that very spot, new life emerges, totally different in appearance from the seed. And yet somehow, the mature plant remains the same living entity. Well, a similar process occurs with the believer, with the believer's natural body and resurrection body. Paul's sharp rebuke in verse 36 leads us to believe that Maybe some of the, Christ the Corinthians had some false assumptions about the resurrection. Now here are just a few that um, I think people to this day still believe or have some form or they have a, there's, they believe in this in, in one form or another. They believe that the natural body of the believer remains buried and received a second body later on. Maybe others believe that the body would rise like the zombies we often see on TV and on movies. Also, maybe others believe that the at the resurrection, believers would be reconstructed and returned to our old bodies. And a common one that believers, I think, still believe to this day is that uh, we turn into spirits or we turn into ghosts. Well, I'm going to show you, well, I'm going to try to show you this morning that nowhere in the Bible does it say that that happens to us when we die. Here, it's going to tell us exactly what happens. Now, he further explains in verse 37 that when you sow a seed, you do not expect the same seed to come up at the harvest. The seed has to die. But from, again, from that death comes new life. And that life is usually more beautiful than the seed that was actually planted. 
so what he does in the rest of this chapter is to clarify to them that at the resurrection, there is continuity that is in our bodies, our bodies, but there is not identity. It's not the same body. In other words, you see, the same body comes to life, but it's transformed for the eternal state according to God's design. To illustrate the fact that the glory of the, resurrect of the resurrection body will be different from the glory of our present bodies, Paul makes two analogies, or two more analogies. He points out that not all flesh is the same. There is one flesh for humans, another for animals, another for fish, uh, or birds, and another for fish. All these creatures are distinctly different, yet they all have flesh. So you see there's similarity without exact duplication. The conclusion is therefore this. If God is able to make different kinds of bodies for men, animals, birds, and fish, why can't he, why, why can he not make a different kind of body for us at the resurrection? The next analogy he uses to illustrate the glory of the resurrected body is the heavenly bodies. Just as there is a difference between the splendor of heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, there's a difference between the body of the believer now and the body that he'll have after death. Now from the naked eye, everything in the sky looks the same at night. However, if you were to take a closer look through a, through a powerful telescope, or if you go to one of the observatories, you'll see that the universe is distinctly beautiful. All the stars, the galaxies, the everything is different. Nothing is the same. There is beauty in our universe. For instance, he points out the sun, and the moon and the stars, they all differ in splendor. In fact, he points out again, one star differs from another star in splendor. Paul here is emphasizing that the splendor of the resurrection body will be different from the splendor of the body which we have here on earth at the present time. While our present bodies are adapted for the environment of time and earth, our resurrected bodies will, are adapted for the environment of, um, of eternity and heaven. Now, I think from what we read so far and from other passages of, of what scriptures say, we can clearly see that each believer will be distinct yet recognizable throughout all eternity in our glorified bodies. You see, although we all will resemble the Lord Jesus morally, that is, freedom from sin, I don't believe we shall all look like the Lord physically. According to other Bible passages, I believe we'll be able to recognize not just Jesus himself, but everyone we've ever known and everyone we've ever loved. For example, in 2 Samuel 12, 23, when David's infant child died, 
David confidently said, I'll go to him, but he will never return to me. David evidently expected to see his child again, not just a nameless, faceless soul without an identity, but that very child. I also believe we'll be able to recognize people we've heard of or we've read about but haven't personally met. In Matthew 17.3, Moses and Elijah appeared with Christ at the Mount of Transfiguration. And even though it had been centuries since Moses died and Elijah had been taken up to heaven in that chariot of fire, they still maintained a clear identity. Peter said in verse 4, Lord, it's good for us to be here. I will set up three shelters here, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. So he recognized them. He knew who they were. Even though he had never met them, he was obvious to, to, to him. It was obvious to Peter who these people were. The other noticeable difference we'll see are the rewards granted at the judgment seat of Christ as a result of, Christian, of, a, of a Christian's faithfulness in service. While I have no doubt that all of us, all of us will be supremely happy in heaven, scripture makes it clear that though some, that, that some will have a greater capacity for enjoying heaven. The Lord said in Revelation 2.23, I will give to each of you according to your works. You see, every cup in heaven will be filled, but some cups will be bigger than others because of the faithfulness and sacrifice of those saints when they were here on earth. Know this then. Store your treasures in heaven where moths and rust cannot destroy and thieves do not break in and steal. Now as we continue our passage, Paul will now, will now answer the second question from verse 35. What kind of body will they have when they come? So let's go back to our uh, Bibles and pick up in verse 42. Verse 42. So it is with the resurrection of the dead sown in corruption, raised in incorruption, sown in dishonor, raised in glory, sown in weakness, raised in power, sown a natural body, raised a spiritual body. If there if there's, is a natural body, there's also a spiritual body. So it is written, the first man, Adam, came li a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural, then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. Like the man of dust, so are those who are of the dust. Like the man of heaven, so are those who are of heaven. And just as we have been born the image of the man of dust, we will also bear the image of the man of heaven. Having just reviewed the differences within the created order, Paul now shows the contrast between the believer's body now and what it will be in its eternal state. 
He begins by saying it's sown in, incorrupt, in, in corruption and will be raised in incorruption. Right now, at the present time, our bodies are subject to disease and death. When they're placed in the grave, they decompose and return to the dust. But it will not be so with the resurrection body because it will no longer be subject to sickness and decay. The present body is sown in dishonor, meaning there's nothing very majestic or glorious about a dead body. However, that same body uh, will be raised in glory. It will be free, now I talked about this a little last week, but it will be free from wrinkles, scars, marks of age. It will be free from being overweight and ultimately traces, any traces of sin. When believers physically die, our bodies are sown in weakness and raised in power at the resurrection. I mentioned this again last week, but uh, with the coming of old age, weakness increases until death itself strips a person of whatever strength they once had. In eternity, however, our new bodies will not be subject to these sad limitations, but we will be possessed of, will we be possessed of powers that it does not have at the present time. For instance, let's look at Jesus when he rose from the dead. He was able to enter rooms where doors were locked. Revelation 21.4 also informs us of what eternity will be like for us who believe. Death will be no more. Grief, crying, and pain will be no more. Because the previous things have passed away. What a glorious day that'll be. At the resurrection, the body changes from a perishable body, in other words, the natural body, to an imperishable body, imperishable body, or a spiritual body. It's important to emphasize here that the spiritual does not mean non-material. We know that at the resurrection, the body of the Lord Jesus was composed of flesh and bones. Because he said in Luke chapter 24, verse 39, a ghost does not have flesh and bones as you can see we have. Remember Thomas? I told him, go ahead and stick your finger right on my side, right through the holes in my hands. You'll see, this is for reals. I'm just, those are my words, but that's what he essentially said. The difference between a natural body and a spiritual body is that the former is suited for life here on earth, whereas the latter, the spiritual new resurrected body, will be suited for life in heaven. Paul then says in verse 45, so it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life 
giving spirit. We went over this last week also, but here again, the first Adam is contrasted with the Lord Jesus Christ. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, it says that God breathed the breath of life into the nostrils and that man, Adam, became a living being. Therefore, all those who are descendant from him bear the same consequences. The last Adam, the Savior, Jesus Christ, became a life-giving spirit. And as we read in chapter 6, verse 17, there it says, Anyone joined with the Lord is one spirit with him. The difference is that in the first case, in the first case Adam was given physical life. Whereas in the second case, Christ will impart life by granting believers incorruptible, imperishable, and an eternal body. In verse 46, Paul presents a fundamental law in God's universe. Namely, the spiritual is not first, but the natural, then the spiritual. And that can be understood in three ways. Adam, the natural man, came first on the stage of human history. Then Jesus, the spiritual man. A second way this can be, that verse, verse 46 could be understood is we are born into the world as natural beings. Then, when we are born again, we become spiritual beings. And a third way we can understand verse 46. We first receive natural bodies. Then, in the resurrection, we will receive spiritual bodies. Paul goes on to further explain verse 46 in verses 47 and 49. Adam came first, was created from earth, had life suited only for the natural realm, and his body returned to earth from which it was fashioned. From this first perfect man, we've been given the same kind of body that will eventually return to the earth as well. But Christ came after Adam. And in his resurrection, had a body designed by and suited for heaven. Therefore, Jesus, the second perfect man, can give us another kind of body. You see, all of us, every single one of us, were born into the image of the first Adam. And those who put their trust in the last Adam which is Jesus Christ, will also bear his resurrection image. From the first Adam, we were all made of dust. But from the last Adam, we can all be made of heaven. So if you're a born-again believer, if you've trusted and surrendered your life to Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit is living in you, this is the promise. We will also bear the image of the man in heaven. Philippians 3.21 repeats Paul's theme. He will transform the body of our humble condition into the likeness of his glorious body by the power that enables him to subject everything to himself. Man, what a, 
Again, let me repeat that last, uh, the phrase I said before. What a glorious day. New bodies made exact just to live in eternity, to live in heaven. Now, in this last section we're about to read, Paul further impacts the need for a bodily transformation. So, again, let's pick up where we left off. If you have your Bibles open, we'll be in verse 50. Verse 50 of 1 Corinthians chapter 15. What I'm saying, brothers and sisters, is this. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor can corruption inherit incorruption. Listen, I'm telling you a mystery. We will not all fall asleep, but we will all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible and we will be changed. For this corruptible body must be clothed with incorruptibility and this mortal body must be clothed with immortality. When this corruptible body is clothed with incorruptibility and this mortal body is clothed with immortality, then the saying that is written will take place. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where death is your victory? Where death is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, be steadfast, immovable, always excelling in the Lord's work, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Paul now turns to the subject of the transformation that will take place in the bodies of believers, both living and dead, at the time of the Lord's return. He immediately points out that the flesh and, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor can, the, nor can corruption inherit incorruption. By this, he means that our frail mortal bodies cannot survive God's eternal and perfect holy presence. In other words, these bodies of ours, which again are subject to disease, decay, and decomposition, are not suited right now, are not made for heaven, are not suited for a life in a state where there is no corruption. This raises the problem then of how the bodies of living believers can be suited for life in heaven. The answer is in the form of a mystery, which if you remember um, a couple weeks, a few weeks ago I mentioned it, but which is a truth previously unknown, but is now revealed by God to the apostles and made, and made known through them to us. In verse 51 through 53, Paul tells us what that mystery is. And let me read that again. If you like secrets, he's, that's what he's essentially doing here, is telling us a secret. Verse 51, listen, I'm telling you a, a mystery. We will not all fall asleep, but we will all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the trumpet, 
for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible and we will be changed for this corruptible body must be clothed with incorruptibility and this mortal body must be clothed with immortality. His point is this, not all Christians will experience death. Since some will be made alive or some will be alive when he comes back. But all will go undergo, undergo a miraculous transformation necessary to give them their glorified bodies. Let me explain. This change, this transformation will happen instantly in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. Now the last trumpet here does not mean the same trumpet that marks uh, the end of the world or even the, la or even the last trumpet that uh, the last trumpet mentioned in, in Revelation. Rather, it re refers to the trumpet of God mentioned in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 6 through 7, which says, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the archangel's voice, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are still alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always, and so we will always be with the Lord. This remarkable instant gathering of Christians, both the dead ones and the living ones, unto Jesus into the clouds has been called the rapture. After the Latin word for that word that's in there, caught up. There will come a day in God's eternal plan. He gives those dead in the Lord their resurrected bodies. And then in an instant, he gathers his people to meet Jesus in the air. All the redeemed on earth at that time will rise up to meet the Lord in the clouds and will receive their resurrected bodies. H.A. Ironside says that the last trumpet was a figure of speech that came from Roman military. When they broke camp, the first trumpet meant strike the tents and prepare to leave. The second trumpet meant fall into line. And the third and last trumpet meant march away. The last trumpet, therefore, describes the Christians' marching orders at the rapture of the church. When this trumpet sounds, the dead will be raised incorruptible and will be changed for this corruptible body must be clothed with incorruptibility and this mortal body must be clothed with immortality. This reiterates the fact that every Christian who has died will obtain their new incorruptible bodies and we will also be changed into our new ones. And we will finally be clothed and ready to be with God for all of eternity. So you see, if we are to live forever in the kingdom of God, the resurrection is a must for our eternal destiny. It needs to be. The resurrection has to happen. He then explains in verse 
54 and 55, that when all this has happened, then the way will be paved for the events of verses 24 through 28 to unfold. The New Living Translation puts 54 like this. Then, when our dying bodies have been transformed into bodies that will never die, the scripture will be fulfilled. That death is swallowed up in victory. Now that scripture, uh, Paul takes uh, that scripture from Isaiah 25, chapter, uh, I'm sorry, chapter 25, verse 8. So you see the climax of this series of events for believers is the destruction of death itself. Sigmund Freud, the founder of psychiatry, wrote, and finally there's the painful riddle of death for which no remedy at all has been found, nor probably ever will be. And he was saying that for centuries since mankind since mankind can remember, that's been the question, what is going to happen to us when we die? How will we be raised up? Is there life after death? What's going to happen? Well, he didn't look close enough. He didn't look, dig deeper because the answer would have been right in front of him in, in this book. The thing is, when Jesus rose from the dead, he solved the riddle of death that eluded every philosopher and every religious scholar that every religious scholar tried to solve. He rose from the dead and, and that was it. That was the answer. We will rise again. Believers will rise again physically. Therefore, as a Christian, you have victory in death and over death. Why? Because of the victory of Jesus Christ in his own resurrection. Jesus said in John 14, 19, because I live, you will live too. Now, in addition to quoting Isaiah 25, 8, Paul also quotes from Hosea 13, 14, where death is your victory, where death is your sting. I see this verse as a taunt song, which we as believers will sing when we rise to meet the Lord in the air. We will be mocking death because it has been defeated and has lost its sting. No longer will we be ever be no longer will we ever be terrorized by death because our sins have been forgiven and will we be able to stand now before God innocent and completely justified well just like he did in Romans chapter or chapter 6 through 8 Paul goes on to recall in verse 56 that the sin is the primary culprit that has led to both physical and spiritual death. The law, however, apart from pointing people to Christ, serves only to promote sin and ultimately condemns the unrepentant sinner. 
it has been well said that if there, there, it, there were no sin, there would be no death. And if there were no law, there would be no condemnation. But, he goes on to say in the following verse, thanks be to God that this deadly sequence has been interrupted. How? By the victory over death. God gives us through the death and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. And finally, in the final verse, Paul concludes with an appeal in light of the resurrection. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, be steadfast, immovable, always excelling in the Lord's work, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Since we know that death is defeated and have an eternal destiny with Jesus Christ, we should stand firm and unshakable all the more for him right now. We ought to remain totally dedicated to the work of the gospel because our labor now has eternal value. So if what we do now counts forever, then our labor in the Lord is not in vain. This means because of our assurance of Christ's victory over death, we know that nothing at all, nothing we do for him will ever be wasted or lost. Pastor John Corson said this, even if it seems that what you're doing for him is not making an impact, know this, your labor is not in vain. The Lord does not repay you on commission. He pays you for your labor. He doesn't pay you depending on how successful you are in service. He pays you by the hour. Just be faithful to do what he's called you to do and leave the results to him. So therefore, if your labor in the Lord is not in vain, you ought to remain unshakably firm and seek to always go above and beyond the work that you do. Hebrews chapter 6 verse 10 tells us, For God is not unjust. He will not forget your work and the love you demonstrated for his name by, by serving the saints and by continuing to serve him. Verse 58 is the answer to Ecclesiastes, where 38 times Solomon used the word vanity. Vanity. Of vanities. All is vanity, wept Solomon. But here in this verse, Paul sang a song of victory. So this morning, as you can see, we went over a believer's resurrected body, the need for the resurrection, and the victory resulting from the resurrection. So as I begin to wrap up here, my question is this, will you be part of God's harvest at the resurrection? When Christ comes to gather his people 
regardless of whether you're alive or you're dead, will you be clothed in, with corrupt, incorruptibility and immortality at that first resurrection? Jesus said in John 5, or yeah, chapter 5, verse 24, Truly, I tell you, anyone who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not come under judgment, but has passed from death to life. Or will you die in the mortal, perishable, and corruptible state that you currently live in, in that, or of that first man, Adam. Revelation chapter 20 says about those who've died and are raised at the second resurrection. I also saw the dead, the great and the small standing before the throne and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by what was written in the books. And anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. This lake of fire is the second death, the last and ultimate death. When Jesus Christ rose from the grave, not only did he prove he was God, but also showed all of us who believe in him that we can face death with confidence. We don't have to fear death. I mentioned that last week also. Something wonderful is awaiting us. Now, last week I mentioned maybe a few fears I have about death, but I'll tell you what I fear about him coming back and taking me at the rapture while I'm living is doing something I'm not supposed to be doing, being in sin. So I make it an effort every day, every moment to watch what I'm doing, to watch, be careful about what I'm watching or what I'm listening to making sure that I'm not, I don't have my hand in the cookie jar when the Lord comes and takes me. We have several parables throughout the, throughout the Gospels of what happens to servants who were unprepared when the Master came back to his home. Will you be prepared? Will you be prepared if you stepped outside of this room right now and all of a sudden fell dead. Will you be prepared for the resurrection, for your bodies to be raised in heaven at a time designated by the, by the Lord? And will you be prepared in the twinkling of an eye, it says, for the Lord to come and take you home? And if you're not, I'll give you an opportunity in a bit to do that. But I want to end with this, this quote by Lewis Johnson. And he said this, The resurrection is God's amen 
to Christ's statement, it is finished. So if you're watching, if you're listening, if you're whatever state or condition you're in right now, you can prepare yourself by being spiritually born again. And that's where it begins. By giving your life over to Jesus Christ. And if you've wandered away, it's never too late to come back and ask for forgiveness. And you know what? Jesus won't say, nah, you blew it. That's it. You're done. Forget you. You've blown it too many times. Four, five, six, seven. You, you keep coming back and, and nothing ever. You know what? Keep coming back to the Lord. Keep coming back. And he will forgive you because he loves you. If he didn't, he wouldn't have died for you. And for those of you who have never surrendered your life to Christ, who have never, who don't have any kind of hope, who are, have been searching for answers about what will happen after you die, and every place you've looked has been empty. Nothing has satisfied, whether it be from books or philosophies or maybe other religions. Trust in the Lord's resurrection. Know again that He has risen. He is alive. And because of that, if you believe in Him, you will rise as well. And if that's you and, and this is what you want, you want that assurance, you want that guarantee that you also will rise from the dead, that you will have a new, imperishable, incorruptible body suited to live for all of eternity. And all you have to do, again, is just surrender your life to Lord Jesus Christ. Come to the cross and ask Him for forgiveness for your sins. And if you're ready to do that, I'll lead you in a prayer. I want to lead you in a prayer to do that, to uh, accept the Lord. So wherever you're at, close your eyes, bow your heads, and with all sincerity, pray this to the Lord. God, forgive me of my sins. I know that I've blown it. And I know that I've been separated from you. I no longer want to live that way. I believe Jesus is Lord and that he died on the cross for my sins. And so I give my life to him. I surrender my heart to him, to your son. I receive your forgiveness, Lord. Take it by faith. Fill me now with your Holy Spirit. Make me new so that I may walk with you for the rest of my life. 
until I come and see you again in my new resurrection. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you've prayed that, let somebody know. Whether here, call us, or find a church you can go to or talk to a Christian you may know. He'll point you in the right direction, but if you prayed that, God has forgiven you of your sins. If you sincerely and honestly prayed that, then you've, your sins are forgiven and He's made you new. And for all of us that are here, again, there's hope. I'm looking forward to that day when I will see all of you in heaven and be able to give you the biggest hug that maybe I've never been able to give you. You know, where it's just, I mean, when I give my hugs, they are full of love, but this will be like, like full love, like full on love, you know? And it's going to be so great on that day. Don't lose that hope. Don't let anyone ever tell you that or try to fool you or convince you of something else. This is, you know, it's coming soon. I know this has been said for centuries, but all you got to do is look at the events, pay attention to what's going on in the world around us, and you'll see time is ticking. Don't be caught with your hand in a cookie jar, you know, whatever that means for you. Be ready, be prepared for your new glorious body. Let's pray. Lord God, um, thank you for sending your son to die. We so appreciate that you've given us new life because of him, because of his resurrection. I pray for anybody here, Lord, that's dealing with some difficult things right now, Lord. Show them there's a way. All they have to do is look to you for strength and for hope. That whatever they're going through, whatever struggles, it's not the end. That you will get them through it if they just hold on to you. Give us the peace that we're looking for. Lord, let us always keep our eyes fixated on you. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.